Let us pray. A God of grace and mercy, in your compassion, Christ not only died but was risen and came again, again to set the pattern of remembering who he is and who we are in relationship to him that we might be set free. Give us ears to hear and faith to follow. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. So we're continuing on our journey of uh, seeking to live uh, wholeheartedly in this season of Eastertide, which lasts 50 days. It's a season of resurrection. And we've been listening in on the scriptures and uh, learning a bit from this book of The Gifts of Imperfection by Brene Brown. I commend it to you. You can get it on Amazon if you'd like a copy. The reason I'm keen on leaning in and uh, looking at the scripture and this wholehearted living is because I believe that its practices have been actually modeled to us through Christ. Brene Brown would say that uh, this wholehearted living involves cultivating a daily practice of courage and compassion and connection with ourselves and other people. Now, Brene defines her research and the study of people who, in spite of their fear and shame, are living these extraordinary lives of liberty. Because one of the things she found in her research is that shame and fear are universal emotions we all experience. But there was this group that lived life in a fuller way. They seemed to have more freedom, more joy. And so in her research, she went back and studied what was it they were doing. And they were, in fact, practicing courage, which, if you break down the word courage, core is the very beginning of that, and it means to live from their heart which is courage. And the only way to get that is to exercise it daily, to, like swimming, you get to be a better swimmer when you practice swimming. Same thing with courage. You get more courage by couraging, she would say. And then they would exercise compassion with themselves and others rather than pushing through and digging in. when they're overwhelmed and need to stop. They stop and they get deliberate. And they meditate and notice what they're feeling and what they need, rather than just pushing on through into overdrive. And then they get intentional about what they can do that might be restorative, like take a break or 
have a rest or even maybe do some play. Maybe play with their dog, go on a walk. Rather than numbing out by watching TV or surfing on the internet, getting intentional about, I'm in some pain here, I'm overwhelmed, what can I do to get back centered? And then they go about taking action rather than inaction. They do something that brings life rather than that old way of digging deep, that old style of pushing through into overdrive. You know what it is when you are running on fumes and you have nothing left and yet you keep pushing. Well, these folks, they don't do that. They stop and connect with themselves and others and nature and God with kindness rather than resentment and rage. Because she would say that to do that dig deep when you have nothing left leaves us acting out with rage and resentment and blame. And that just exacerbates the whole cycle. So knowing the definition of things is helpful, but the reality is is that we will never ever be able to love more, to be wholehearted, all in, if we don't know what gets in our way of doing this. We go back to those universal emotions of shame and fear. You see, shame and fear's chief objective, their goal, is to keep us feeling small and ineffective, to keep us feeling doubt, lack of confidence, not living out of our God-given identity as the ambassadors of Christ that we are made to be. Shame and fear's favorite lines are, just who do you think you are? If you hear that, you're on to something, and shame is trying to shut you down. You're on to something God would probably have you do. Then there's that other line that shame and fear can use, like, you just need to wait. Wait till you lose those 20 pounds. Wait till you get the promotion. Wait till Mr. Wright shows up. Wait till whatever that is. Because shame is all about keeping you small, not living the larger life that you're meant to live, not walking in freedom, not knowing that you, in fact, are already worthy of God's love because that's who God is and the relationship he wants to have with you. He changed everything in his death and resurrection. And in your baptism, you entered into that death and resurrection, and you have new life in him. But these lies that shame and fear will use to keep us shut down and shut in, like the disciples were closed in that room right after Christ's crucifixion. They keep us on the sidelines of life. They keep us from being all we're meant to be. 
But in her research, the people who have lived wholeheartedly have, in fact, become conscious of what is this trick that shame and fear do? What are the physical sensations that you experience when you feel shame or fear? To notice and be conscious of it. For me, I often blush. I get hot and dry mouthed. I have my heart kind of race, and I get fixated on whatever that stupid thing is I did. Can I have an amen? Does anybody have that happen? Uh-huh. Thank you. And then you get this kind of tunnel vision, and you're stuck, and there you are. And life is all happening around you, but you're in another world because shame has you in a lockdown. I can barely breathe sometimes, and I tend to feel very small. Well, the beautiful thing is that Brene has found through her research that through expressing courage and compassion and connection, we can find a way out of that shame spiral, or what she would call a shame storm. And I would say that if we look at our gospel story today, there's some clues for us about the way out of shame. Because if anything, Christ came to liberate us from that deadly emotion. Through grace and forgiveness and love that is never ending, that will never separate us from that love. In our gospel story, we see how Jesus assists Peter in breaking through his shame to the other side of love and liberty through authenticity and compassion. The way of freedom always begins with owning our story, all of it, the part we most want to hide, and connecting with it compassionately and connecting with others who can offer compassion. Now, I am going to just say right out, I know I'm taking creative license here because I'm looking at this story from a very different angle, but I want to explore this process of wholeheartedness in looking at this story because I, begin, I really do believe that God intends this way of living for us. Now, you'll remember three years earlier, Jesus has come to Peter and the guys, and he's called them to follow him. And they have left everything, everything for him. Their boats, their families, their livelihood, to go and be his disciple. Quite an honor in that day to be picked, to emulate this learned teacher but then, in the end, they abandoned him. In his time of greatest need, they were very imperfect. They had fallen short. They were human. Jesus was brutally beaten, hung as a thief, and died on the cross, and he was buried. And it seemed like that was the end of the story. We've already done quite a bit of imagining through Holy Week, the fear and the confusion that they must have been experiencing, and I would say the shame. 
they had to have been experiencing for not having followed through, for not sticking to the end, for in fact abandoning him. They might have even felt shame for following him in the first place. I imagine questions were kicking up like, what if we'd stayed? What if we'd fought for him? Maybe none of this would be happening. You see, shame and fear love to use the what-if game to keep us shut down and ineffective. You can get caught in that loop and stay there for years, trust me. That isn't what God wants for us. But Jesus has already appeared to them as we hear this story. He appeared to them in the upper room. And they know firsthand, even Thomas, that Jesus is alive, fully alive, and that all is not lost. Now, that being said, I have to try and get into Peter and imagine he has probably still got quite a shame storm swirling around within him because he was the one that most publicly failed Christ after Christ predicted that he would do such a thing at that last supper Jesus asked Peter do you love me yes Lord yes Lord yes Lord and he said you'll deny me three times before the cock crows I don't know how Peter lived with himself. I know shame and fear was beaten on him bad. Because that's what shame and fear do, don't they? When you screw up, when you're human and you do something, it just starts beating on you. You see... Shame and fear can only get us in a gridlock when they're kept secret. When we hold them down in secret, that story, whatever it is, it metastasizes and it grows larger than life and it takes on a life of its own and it separates us from ourselves, from God and other people. Very often it turns into an illness or an addiction, all because we wouldn't bring that story to light, that incident that shame is beating on us. I have to wonder if Peter didn't return to his former stories, former way of life, possibly on the run from his shame, his shame for denying Christ, not once, but three times publicly in front of others outside the gates. I suspect the shame of that was eating him up on the inside. So he went to do what he knew, maybe to find relief, maybe to find a sense of worthiness, because he surely felt unworthy. 
But ironically, there was nothing there in that old way of life for him. There was no relief. There were no fish. No fish. That's weird. I mean, they had these huge nets. Not one fish. No fish. Worn out, day breaks in, and on there are empty nets, and it causes... There is this cause for a stranger to open up a conversation from the shore. Children, you don't have fish, have you? And a sort of all-knowing stranger we've got there. And they answer him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. Right there, just stop right there. I want to freeze frame it and zoom in and look at that. And how it is that these worn out, frustrated, poor guys are exhibiting such courage and humility to first listen and then to act on this stranger's words. And they cast to the other side. And as they're doing that, we hear that the disciple that Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord, it's the Lord. And Peter puts on some clothes, possibly cover up his shame but he exercised courage heart felt moving towards Jesus as he jumped into the sea he didn't let shame cause him to turn away and run Is it, have you ever done that with your shame where you see someone and you avoid because oh 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 Right? They couldn't possibly set me now. But Peter runs towards him. It's so beautiful. While the others haul this net full of fish to the shore. And on the shore, they find their warmth. And I would probably imagine that it was a shame trigger for Peter. There, a fire again to warm himself by, just like the one he stood there warming himself by the night he denied Christ before the cock crowed. He denied being one who followed Jesus. Here is the extraordinary thing, is that Jesus doesn't shame him. He doesn't berate him. But he lances his shame with compassion and connection, allowing him to express, embrace his full story and to choose to be all in and live from his heart anew. He says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Over and over, you know. You're God of everything you know. Jesus' response isn't stay fishing. It isn't initially follow me, but it is feed my lambs. You have work to do on my behalf. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Remember me with my sheep and tell them of my love 
that transforms your shame. Follow me. Shame no longer could make Peter cower in the corner or hold back and return to just being a fisherman. He was and is a Christ follower, even to the death that was predicted at the end of this reading. He was called to lead others to remember who Christ is in the broken bread and the wine, which like Christ's sacrifice transforms our shame into the love and liberty he means for us to have. So how do we be like Peter? How do we let Christ's light transform our shame by owning our story, by owning the moment it comes crashing in with another person I'd say a warning, don't do it with just anyone, but only a person that's earned the right to hear your story. As Brene talks about having many, many friends, there are very few that know how to be compassionate rather than sympathetic. You don't want someone to say, oh, bless your heart, because that's just going to add to the shame storm. Rather, somebody who can say, I've been there, and it sucks. I'm really sorry. And in that connection, everything changes because the lie is exposed, and we realize we're not alone, that we are all imperfect, and that God means to bring liberty. When I first started learning about this, I wasn't really sure I had someone I could tell these things. And so I told God, and I practiced compassion to myself. And then I prayed, and I listened and looked for who would be someone worthy. And it began to change those things that bind us, that we let fester by being able to expose them to the light. Rather than blaming and shaming in this compassion, we're called to set limits and boundaries so that we can be the fullest of who we are, our authentic self, and perfect in all. Amen.